Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. On today's episode, we have a wonderful discussion with Dr. Les Parrott about important questions every couple should ask before and after they marry. Dr. Les Parrott and his wife Leslie have been traveling the globe speaking and helping couples for more than 35 years. Les is a professor of psychology at Northwest University and they are founders of the Center for Healthy Relationships on the campus of Olivet University. The Parrots have been featured in USA Today and the New York Times. Their television appearances include CNN, The View, The O'Reilly Factor, The Today Show, and Oprah. As number one New York Times bestselling authors, their books have sold over two million copies in more than two dozen languages and include best-selling and gold medallion winner Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Stronger Marriage Connection, where the doctors are in. I'm psychologist Liz Hale, along with Dr. David Schramm, professor at Utah State University. We are dedicating our life's work to bringing you the best we have in valid marital research, along with a few tips and tools on how to help you create the marriage of your dreams. It's really an honor to be able to welcome Dr. Les Parrott to the show. He has been someone that Dave and I both have followed closely. We actually have original copies of his book. He and Leslie wrote, Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts, uh, first editions. And we're really proud to have that on our, on our, the, the, um, what, on our bookcases. There we go. I'm so thrilled about that. And Les, you have sold more than a million copies. Is that right? Of Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts? Uh, we did at the time that that was last printed. It's closer to 2 million now, but, uh, yeah, a lot of couples have used this book over the years. It's been, uh, kind of, uh, something we never imagined. And, and all these years later, that was, that was born out of our own kind of frustration and need. And to this, this, uh, so many years later to still know that couples are benefiting from it. Of course, we've updated it along the way with new research, but it's, it's been such a, a great thing, great experience. Thank you for that update. Two million, couple, cop, two million copies. And of course, SIMBUS stands for Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. That's the assessment that you've added to coordinate with this book. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, I think it was on the third, when we reached the milestone of a million copies on this book. And, and by the way, let me back up on, on how this book came to be, if you don't mind. We, Leslie and I were teaching at uh, a university here in Seattle where we live and and students were, I think we were in maybe around February or something like that. Some students said, hey, could you come over to our residence hall 
and give a talk on how to fall in love without losing your mind. That was the, the subject that they gave us, how to fall in love without losing your mind. And uh, we said, yeah, of course, we'd be happy to do that. We were one of the few psychologists on the, this small uh, college campus and, and uh, so clinical psychologists at least. And so we said, yeah, we'd be happy to do that. My wife, Leslie's a marriage and family therapist. I'm a psychologist. And so we went over, they said it'd be around 10 o'clock at night and it was like a Tuesday or a Wednesday or something. And I said, how many should we expect? They said, well, if the whole floor shows up, we might have 20, 25 people. I said, great. And so we made our way over there at 10 o'clock at night on a rainy uh, night in Seattle. And, and there was this huge line of students coming out of the residence hall. And I thought, wow, I wonder what's going on here. This is interesting. And uh, it turned out, they, turned out they had put signs up uh, about this talk that was going to be given on how to fall in love without losing your mind. And um, it wasn't because of us. We weren't known. We hadn't written a book. We were brand new to the campus, just out of graduate school. And uh, that was kind of the first indicator. They were all there for that talk. And um, of course, we had to move to the auditorium on the campus. And it was just kind of like, wow, this is this is this is a moment right now. And so Leslie and I, it was kind of the first kind of inclination that we had. Wow, these students are really starving for information on relationships, especially romantic relationships. And so we uh, thought later, a few months after that, you know, we should do an event for engaged couples on this campus. And so we did. And we called it Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. And we did it later that spring. And again, we were kind of overwhelmed by the turnout on that more than we expected. And so we did it the next year. And it was twice as big as it was the year before. And the third year, people were actually coming in from other parts of the Pacific Northwest to attend it. And churches and so forth were referring people, counselors and so forth. And so we said, well, we should write a book uh, by that topic, uh, by that title, Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. And um, so we did. And uh, obviously, and uh, soon after that, uh, we got a call from uh, Oprah Winfrey, who said, hey, we want you to come on the program and talk about this book. And of course, that just opened up the floodgates to be on The View and David Letterman and everything else talking about marriage. And suddenly we had this national platform to talk about marriage. But that's really how that book was born. And it, it's just been an incredible ride. And so when you bring up the topic of the assessment, uh, I want people to realize this, we didn't just sit down around in leather chairs one day and go, we should do an assessment on this. You know, this has been something we have been helping couples with for a long time. And so when the book reached a milestone of a million copies, our publisher, HarperCollins said, uh, hey, Let's revise it. Let's uh, update this thing. And I've we've been around publishing enough to know by now that this is kind of publisher speak for let's put a new cover on it. And uh, we said, no, let's let's really do it right. And uh, we did a massive listening tour with uh, clergy and counselors and coaches on what do you need to help you do um, your job better as you help couples launch lifelong love. And so it was really, they were the ones that said, we want an assessment. And so we developed the Symbus assessment. You can find it at Symbus.com, S-Y-M-B-I-S. And uh, that's, uh, we've trained hundreds of thousands of counselors now in how to use that assessment. And it's been uh, just, it's kind of a, it's just, you know, do you guys know what a BHAG is? You ever heard of a BHAG? 
What's, what's a BHAG? No, a what BHAG is, is a business term. If you if you went to school in, in business, you'd know the term, and it's it's called a big, hairy, audacious goal. That's a BHAG. Oh, yeah. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, Apple Computer has a, a BHAG. You know, Coca-Cola has a BHAG. Here's our BHAG. We want to see the divorce rate across North America reduced by a third in our lifetime. That's our BHAG. And do you realize that for every single percentage point that we drop the divorce rate, the lives of more than a million children are positively impacted? Think about that. That's for one single percentage point. And uh, I think it'd be one of the greatest social revolutions we've ever experienced to see that. What if we just got it to double digits? We lowered it by double digits. The, the ramifications and the ripple effect for generations would be difficult to calculate. It's, it's really, so, so that's kind of the overriding thing. And we realize a book's not going to do that. Seminars aren't going to do that. And we're more optimistic about it than ever before because of what takes place when someone goes through this assessment. They lower their chances of divorce by 31%. They increase their chances of, of uh, contentment and happiness by nearly a third and all these. And it's so measurable, right? An assessment can really measure outcomes. So anyway, that's a long answer to how this book came to be, but uh, and, and the, how the assessment turns into it. But that, that's what that's the story. That's very cool. Oh, I became man. one of those. I love that. That's me. Yeah, I trained with you on the Simba, so and it, it is impressive. It's really a nice handout to be able to give couples. So thank you for that. It's impressive. Let me just mention that uh, you know we're we're not the only show in town. There's another incredible assessment called Prepare and Rich out of the University of Minnesota, and uh, that that he forty years ago uh, David paved the way on that to uh, build the really the first, and it was paper pencils, kind of clunky and so forth, but still an incredible. Obviously, it's, it's online now, but uh, whatever the assessment is, if it's reliable and valid. Uh, that moves the needle. That's what we encourage couples to use. That's nice of you to give them credit. They are on strongermarriage.org. That is on our website as well. You know what we, Dave and I both are um, just, I think, so enamored with you and Leslie and how candid you are. You're so very honest about your own marriage throughout this book. Was that important to you when you, when you set out? Did you feel and did you feel kind of uh, vulnerable <laughs> when you said some of the things you did about your own gridlocks? Well, you know, when we started out to uh, write and, and communicate with other people on healthy relationships and lifelong love, we realized we wanted to not just be proclaimers, we wanted to be pilgrims and uh, alongside them. And, um, you know, the, the generation before us kind of stood up on the platform and told us how you should be and uh, be like, you know, this, this is... Uh, and, and there's a, a lot. In fact, I had a, a great mentor in, in Gary Smalley and uh, Gary has passed on a few years ago. But uh, Gary uh, was super helpful to Leslie and me early on in our careers. And and um, most people of a certain age know who Gary was. And and he he said, uh, you know, people will relate to you if you can kind of convey how you made a mistake and what you did to overcome it. And we really took that to heart. And so to answer your question, yeah, the very first line of this book, Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts, says we never had pre-marriage counseling, but we spent the first year of our marriage in counseling. And um, In counseling. Yeah. yeah. 
And that is, that is the truth. And uh, we realized, yeah, and by the way, we had dated for seven years. Um, both our parents, our, our fathers were, were, were uh, in, in the church clergy and nobody gave us pre-marriage counseling. And, and, and on top of it, we had the same name. I'm Leslie and she's Leslie. I mean, I think people just thought, oh, well, they're, they're just going to do just fine. They've dated so long. And but we had a really rough go of it that first year. And uh, we realized that's not a outlier. A lot of couples experience that there's something that happens after you cross that proverbial threshold. And so, yeah, we have been pretty vulnerable in, in the book and uh, in most of our writing to do that. In fact, we, we often say and we've written a lot of books, but uh, <laughs> that we really write these books for ourselves. And if they help other people, that, that's fantastic. But we learned so much that helped us in the process. <laughs> that's why I do what I do, too, Les, that's for sure. In this book, there are seven questions to ask before and after you marry. We're going to look at our, our favorite five, if you don't mind. And um, question number one, have you faced the marriage miss? As quoted in your book, too many people miss the silver lining because they are expecting gold. You say that many of our expectations are unconscious, correct? Yeah, sometimes we don't even know we, we have, like, for example, we, we say everybody gets married with a personal rule book, right? We have rules about how you should do certain things, everything from how you pay bills to how you take out the trash to how you should uh, dress and who you should vote for. We have rules about all kinds of stuff, right? And we don't even know that we have that rule book until we get married and our new spouse begins to break those rules. And we go, wait a second, that's not how you're supposed to do that, right? Um, I, I remember even early on, uh, I grew up in a home where mom was very tuned into hospitality and doing things uh, with etiquette and so forth. And um, uh, <laughs> I don't know, even know if the story's in the book. I think it is. Uh, but... Uh, uh, I, I remember we had this thing with with ketchup. And as a kid growing up, I remember mom would always put the ketchup in a little dish and you'd, you'd serve it out, you know, like you're just having hamburgers, just an informal meal in the kitchen. Right. But she wouldn't put a bottle of ketchup on the table. She put a little dish of ketchup and you'd spoon it out. And my pinky <laughs> kind of goes up just thinking about it, you know. And uh, and I remember she. uh did that so often. I have two older brothers and I remember all of us would, would just go, mom, just put the bottle of ketchup out on the table. It doesn't matter. It's just us. No, 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 honey. This is the proper way. This is how we do things and, and so forth. And I can remember saying as a kid, well, man, when I get my own house, right, when I get my own kitchen, I'm going to put my own bottle of ketchup right out there on the table. And, uh, and uh, I did get my own house, little apartment in Southern California while Leslie and I were going to graduate school. It wasn't much of a house. And not much of a kitchen either, but we had a little tiny table in there, a room for two. And I remember the very first time after we got things settled in there and we were having hamburgers or something and Leslie set the table and she put a big squeezable bottle of Heinz 57 ketchup out there on the table. And I remember uh, going, what in the world? You don't put a bottle of ketchup out on the table. You got to put in a little dish, right? And uh, and here I was, the very thing that I want, I thought I wanted, right? But that that's an example of how these rules get instilled. We don't even know. They just become a part of us. They filter into our unconscious. And uh, sometimes we rebel against them. And sometimes we can, and, and we do things differently, but sometimes we rebel against them and they still become what we psychologists call an introject. It becomes a part of us, whether we want it to be or not, right? 
uh, or sometimes we buy into it. But so much of that is formed by the home that we came from. Our, our, you know, our, our family of origin was really our university of relationships. For good or for ill, it taught us um, how to function in a relationship. And so we sometimes have to unpack that, of course, because, you know, this person I married took different relationship classes than I did in their home growing up. And so we have to find our own way to make that happen. So, yeah, that's why we start the book with have you faced the myths of marriage with mm-hmm. honesty? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And there there mm-hmm. are many. Yeah. There are many. Yeah. And, and that myth, of course, that I'm talking about is that we expect the same things in married life. That's the big, you know, the easiest myth. Uh, to kind of readily see everybody. Yeah, we expect the same things for married life. I'll tell you the deepest myth that we carry in, in, in this relationship. And that is that this person that I married is going to make me whole, right? That this person that I married is going to make up for all the things that I'm lacking. And of course, no person can do that, right? That's the work that we have to do on our own. And, um, you know, my good buddy, Neil, Clark Warren uh, often would say, um, get yourself healthy before you get yourself married. And of course, you can never check that off your to-do list. We're always in process. But a sense of awareness about your issues that you're bringing into the relationship, that's a pretty good step in the right direction on becoming whole and realizing this person that I'm marrying is not a shortcut to personal well-being and wholeness. Uh, they can't make up for all the things I lack. You know, uh, remember that movie, Jerry Maguire, that was so popular so many years ago? You complete me, right? Everybody was quoting that that line, right? I think it's one of the most quoted lines in all of cinematic history. Show me the money, you complete me. That movie had a lot of them. But this other person, I'm not trying to take the romance out of it, but they can't complete you. They can't make up for that. You know, if you buy into that myth, you're going to be disappointed. And so anyway, we have several myths in that first chapter. And, and that's that's a couple of them. My, my everything. Uh, we expect the same things from married life. And my spouse should make me whole. Two incredibly powerful myths. We'll be right back after this brief message. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. And we're back. Well, let's dive right in. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I love that um, that concept of of that myth. And some of these may be about ketchup. Uh, with ours, you know, it was like, wait a minute, we had either roast beef or we had turkey every Sunday for my whole life. Every it was Sunday dinner and alternated between 
roast beef and turkey. So when I went, I was dating my wife. She had tacos on Sunday. And I thought, oh my, you know, what kind of a sinner are you? So it was this this thought that. So some of them are kind of like that, but others are a little bit more more serious about. Um, I mean, it could be abuse because whatever we have, it, you're right, is normal for us. This is how families kind of should be, and this is how relationships um, should be. So I, I think that's super important that you start out with. Yeah. That. Um, overcoming that, that. Uh, reminds me of that uh, story slash joke about the couple that got married and and uh, she would always make the roast beef on Sunday and cut off the end and uh, the husband was like why are you wasting a good part of the meat or whatever and well that's how my mom always did it and anyway it turned out that her mom did that because she didn't have a pan big enough to fit the whole roast that was the only reason she was cutting it um, but yeah <laughs> We just keep perpetuating. Yeah. Yeah. yeah those, even when they don't make sense. Yeah. So another, another chapter, unless you talk about, again, I've got my, my copy for those who are watching. Yeah. One of the originals of, of this big fan of your work is the habit of, of happiness, uh, which totally buy into explain a little bit more about that one. Yeah. This, this is an interesting chapter. I'm glad you're highlighting it because this was a chapter where our publisher originally and our editors they thought this this is this doesn't belong in this book. This is a different kind of topic, and and uh, they said other pre-marriage you know curriculum and so forth. It doesn't have a chapter on on attitude, and I said, well, they may not, but the research is showing it's one of the single most important things that we can do is um, calibrate our attitude so we can adjust to things beyond our control. Um, in fact. Uh, at Stanford University, there was a fellow uh, that uh, wrote many, many years ago, back in the 40s, I think one of the very first marriage and family textbooks. And, and uh, in it, he has uh, um, a single line that is italicized. And there's like 400 pages in this book, only one sentence that is italicized. And, and that sentence is um, the most important quality of a marriageable person is the habit of happiness. And that's where we got this phrase. And then he goes on to explain that that's all about the capacity to adjust to things beyond your control. Why is this important? Because every marriage, no matter how good it is, eventually bumps into something bad. And that, that bad thing, that jolt, and by the way, if any of our viewers, our listeners, if that hasn't happened to you yet, put your seatbelt on because it's bound to happen, Right. It, it, it might be a financial issue. It may be a relational issue. It might be a career issue, uh, any number of things. Uh, but every marriage encounters at least one jolt. And uh, I'll tell you what ours was in just a moment. But, but how you respond to that will either make or break your relationship. And so I wish we could give it as a wedding gift, the capacity to adjust to things beyond your control. And so uh, anyway, the publisher said, yeah, let's let's put that in the book. And uh, that makes sense. And, and so we did. And I'm so glad that we do did that because we received more notes from more readers in email and otherwise online uh, saying, thank you for writing that chapter. It paid off for us very soon into our marriage. And one of the most salient examples of that was a, a couple that uh, we'd actually done some pre-marriage work with them here in the Northwest and and uh, for their honeymoon, uh, he wanted to surprise her. And uh, she was imagining, no, oh, they were going to go to some exotic place or whatever in some incredibly nice hotel and so forth. 
And he surprised her by taking her to uh, Mount Rainier to go camping. And he loved camping. And uh, he bought all the equipment and was going to make it super nice and so forth. And so she she just, you know, was it wasn't her idea of a honeymoon, you know. And not, not only that, on top of it, when they got to their campsite that he had reserved, it began to rain like crazy, downpour. And he's hustling around, trying to put stakes in the ground to get the tent and keep her dry and start the fire and be the husband he wants to be in the first few hours of his marriage. And, and, uh, and she, she told us, she said, I remember looking out at him building the fire and, and I was in the tent, you know, kind of looking out that triangle little space there at him. And I was thinking, I can't believe he did this to me. I can't believe this is how we're starting our relationship. And she said, I could just feel the resentment seething, beginning to seethe within me. And then she said, I remembered something, the habit of happiness. And she said, I realized in that moment, this is going to be the story that we tell the rest of our lives. And it can be either a fun and happy story or it can be a terrible story. And she said, in that moment, thinking about the habit of happiness, I decided to make it a fun and happy story. And she said, I got out of the tent, started helping him with the fire and the whole thing. We started laughing and, and it was just, you know, it just they, they turned it all around because of their attitude, adjusting to things beyond your control. And so that's the gift of that chapter. Um, it's it's a powerful one. It's the kind of chapter that uh, you won't find another curriculum on marriage preparation. But our research shows it's one of the most important things we need to be talking to couples about. And even in the Simbus assessment, we have a whole page dedicated to that. And, and we kind of look at it as almost the proverbial shock absorbers that you're putting on to your marriage relationship when you hit that rocky road. Like I said, we all do. I do. You guys do. We've all encountered tough times in marriage. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that you start with that because it really does. It helps them sets up a realistic, you know, it's your attitudes, your perspective. It's being able to say, Hey, I'm the author of our own story, whether it's your honeymoon story or your first child story or, or all of this will be able yeah. to script in, that story. In, so thank you for fertility, that. bankruptcy, not being able to find a job, um, not having insurance that you thought you did every couple. I mentioned that I would mention our uh, big jolt, and that is our first son uh, was born premature. And we'd been married 18 years. And we'd given birth to a couple of doctoral degrees, and we'd given birth to a few books. But this was <laughs> our first human. And, uh, wow. and this little guy uh, decided to come into the world three months early. And he weighed just a pound. Leslie was in the hospital on on her left side for a month um, because of the complications with the birth and so forth. And he was the smallest baby to ever be released from Swedish Hospital here in Seattle. And uh, he came home on a on a uh, an oxygen tank and, and you know, that he was tethered to. And, and our house was quarantined. We had more than one 911 calls uh, in the first few weeks of him being home. Uh, I remember when he was in the NICU, uh, one of the neonatal nurses, she said, if he survives, because they didn't think he would, and, and if he did, he was going to have all kinds of problems, blindness and so forth. And they said, if he survives, you'll want a milestone. She had me take off my wedding band 
and uh, slip this little wedding band over that guy's entire hand, clear up over his elbow, clear to his shoulder. And, um, and uh, so that, that kind of experience of dealing with a crisis like that, because it was a crisis, and Leslie's life was in jeopardy, his life was in jeopardy. He went into surgery within uh, a couple of days after uh, being born. I was a medical psychologist working in the hospital across town at the University of Washington School of Medicine. I said, I want to be in the room. I fainted in the room. The doctor said, get that guy out of here. I mean, it, there was so much tension around this whole process. Oh, man. And, uh, and that's the kind of thing that can make or break a marriage relationship. We all know the research on that. And, uh, you know, we, we fought our way through that. And uh, that guy is our little miracle baby who is now in his early 20s and is a uh, doctoral student at uh, Oxford University in England and uh, proved all the doctors wrong. So it has a happy ending for us on that in so many ways. He still struggles with certain things, but uh, that's a jolt, right? Something we never expected. We didn't see that coming. Nobody sat down and said, hey, someday in your marriage, you're gonna have a real difficult time around birth, right? Uh, that's the unexpected thing, adjusting to things beyond your control. And that's what that chapter is dedicated to. Yeah, no, I, I do. I appreciate that because I remember, man, first couple of years of our marriage, my wife needed brain surgery and it wasn't one of those things. Yeah. When you sign up for this, that you think that you don't, you just don't expect those. So I'm so glad that you put that in there because it does all couples will have them or going through something that's really, really difficult. So man, I love that. Um, another aspect you jump into is the gender gap. You talk about just this gender gap and there's a lot of similarities, but there are some differences that are really important to understand. Why, why did you include that? Yeah, when we were writing this book, you know, we, we really, you know, we're social scientists. And so we, we looked around, what are the most important things? What are the most salient issues that we need to be able to give to these couples? And we realized we can help them solve a lot of heartache by just understanding that gender gap. And it's pretty predictable. The research is so straightforward on this. Um, and so to, to simplify it, uh, there's, there's just, we, we talk about here's certain things a wife needs to know about her husband and a husband needs to know about her wife, uh, his wife. And uh, so we um, kind of, you know, synthesize some research to put into that. But here's what I can say and just boil this down for this, re this interview. Um, every woman needs to know that a man's heart opens up most in the midst of shared activity. And most women don't get this certainly early on in marriage because um, the inclination is, hey, let's just go to Starbucks. Let's go to a coffee shop. I just let's just go out and talk, you know, and uh, and then they go do that for a few times. And then the woman eventually goes, he never talks. We go out and over dinner, he just doesn't seem to have anything to say. And, and if we go to a sports bar or something, he's always looking over my shoulder to see the screen and, and instead of me and and uh, why is it? Well, it's because guys don't call up other guys and say, hey, you want to get together and just talk? You know, uh, we go do something. We go fish. We go to a game. We go play tennis. We go mountain biking. We whatever it is we're going to do. And in the midst of that, we'll begin to talk. Right. There's something about shared activity that causes that. And so it can even be a walk around the neighborhood. And we, we've had women that have told us, uh, even after years of marriage, after reading that chapter, that they said, I, I just decided I'm going to initiate a, a walk after dinner with my husband each night. 
And so we just walked less than a mile, just a few blocks around. The, and she says, that's when I learned everything that's going on in his life. He just starts to tell me about what's on his mind and his worries about the kids and blah, blah, blah. And there's something about that shared activity that is transformative for a man. So that's on that side of the ledger. And does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. It does. And yes. then on the other side of the ledger, every man needs to know that this woman he married needs to be cherished. And Leslie and I do enough public speaking uh, around North America to know how guys respond to this question. And I will often say to a live audience, men, what does it mean to cherish a woman? And it's crickets, like nobody, like <laughs> to love her, you know, I mean, it's just, just like no, no concept of it. And, um, and then we give a few examples and guys go, okay, I'm getting it now to cherish a woman. And uh, I remember one really kind of uh, uh, story that stood out for me uh, from our readers uh, on this. And she said her man, her husband had a cup of coffee. She knew he knew that she was going into a really tough business meeting at her work that was going to be tense. And there were several meet people in the room and she had to give a presentation. She was uptight about it and feeling anxious. And, and so he couldn't be there, but he had a cup of uh, 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 what do you call it? Whatever her her drink from Starbucks uh, sent to the office, and he uh, ordered it, uh, and then had it written a little message written in in pen, his own pen, uh, on the lid, so that she could see it when it was delivered, and, and it was a little encouraging word to her, and that's cherishing a woman, right? Now that may not be what every woman would want to get that cup, but he knew that's what his wife would find meaningful. Just last night, uh, last, Leslie and I, we, she has a, a, a new car. We drove our last car, which was a Jeep, uh, to 111,000 miles, and it just gave out. And so finally, we break down, we get Leslie a, a new car, and, uh, and it's a, a car that has this radio that's kind of complicated and so forth. And she's had the car for like three months, and it just dawned on me last night, um, before I went to bed, uh, I bet you haven't been able to get the radio station that you want to show up. 105.3 is your radio station. I, I bet you haven't get that. I'm going to go down right now and set that in your car. And um, well, the thing is, I only said that to myself. I didn't say it to her. And I just did that. Now, when I got up this morning, she got up earlier than I did and went off to a meeting uh, with her small group or something. And, and I got this email that was gushing. I can't believe you went down in the middle of the night and you set my car radio, right? That's cherishing a woman, right? Those, and you know, you have to study your spouse to do get your wife to do that. But that's the difference. Shared activity and on, and, and this idea of cherishing a woman, two pretty powerful things to bridge the gender uh, gap. Ah, uh, spot on. Beautiful. Yep, we all, the three of us know that being in love, of course, is a very poor indicator of staying married. Love is not enough. And in question four in the book, Dr. Perry, you say, do you know how to fight the good fight? Tell us more about how fighting fair is crucial to our survival as a happy couple. Well, uh, conflict is one of the single most important skills that uh, we can master as a married couple. And John Gottman, uh, my friend and colleague here in the Pacific Northwest, um, who's now retired from the University of Washington, 
um, you know, did more yeoman work in this area than anybody else on the planet for decades. He studied conflict in marriage. Um, he came up with something a lot of people already know about called the Four Horsemen uh, of, uh, of uh, the Apocalypse in Marriage. These are uh, four things that you're not fighting well. And he has a he has this thing called the Love Lab. He did have this thing called the Love Lab over at the UW. And um, he put ads in the paper and bring these couples in um, and observe them. It was just like any other day for this couple, except they were hooked up to biofeedback equipment. They were being watched by three or four technicians with, you know, uh, glass in the room and cameras and so forth. And, you know, they had uh, sensors around their forehead to measure muscle tension and their galvanic skin response and all kinds of things. Their heart rate, uh, just like any other day for this couple, right? Um, and they're given a little task to do. And so he would note this. The, and he, he, John is a, a mathematician by trade. That, that's how he, you know, he studied. He, he wanted to quantify this. And so he discovered these four things to avoid in conflict. And uh, criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and withdrawal are the four things to avoid. And, uh, and so that, that's one of the things that we talk about in the book with his blessing. Um, and uh, in, in newer research, what we have discovered, there's also four things that you want to do proactively. This is not in the book. Uh, it's in another book that Leslie and I wrote called The Good Fight. And, um, and, and by the way, conflict, conflict is the price we pay for a deeper level of intimacy. Let me say that again. Conflict is the price we pay for a deeper level of intimacy. If you know how to fight a good fight, it can actually bring you closer together. Okay. And so the goal is not necessarily to avoid conflict. Of course, we don't want it. In fact, couples that avoid conflict, that sets up a whole nother line of, of difficulties and struggles in the relationship. Um, and uh, we don't have time to get into it, but there's, there's different fight types. We all have, I'm an aggressive uh, fighter. I like to win a fight, right? Uh, not Leslie. She just wants to get it out on the table. She doesn't have to win, right? And then there's people that are, are really reluctant to talk about anything that is not pleasant. And so they avoid conflict, right? And so their groin edge, and, and Dave, I see you pointing to yourself. Uh, yeah, yeah your me. groin edge is then to, um, you know, be more authentic with your spouse to say, hey, just so you know, I'm, I'm really irritated when X, Y, Z happens or whatever the thing might be. And so we all have our different challenges. Um, and so understanding your fight type can go a long way, but also to avoid things in conflict. And the, these things that, that we need to avoid, uh, I, I'm sorry, to do proactively. John talks about what to avoid, to do proactively. Um, and uh, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Like how there's there's. There's, it kind of becomes passive. Okay, I need to, to stop doing this, but what can I do to fight a good fight, right? That's that's what matters. Any guesses as to what those things might be? Um, trying to put yourself in the other part, party's shoes. That's one of them. Empathy. You've got it. Empathy is a big one. They're easy to remember because I spell it with the, the word core. C-O-R-E. Cooperation ownership, respect, and empathy. Cooperation, ownership, respect, and empathy. You got to have a cooperative spirit, which is really tough for me because I like to win a fight, okay? But a cooperative spirit 
I remember Leslie one time we were at a, one of our son's soccer games and, and back in the day and, and when they were younger and, and uh, I remember she said, uh, a good fight is, is like we're, we're the, the, the issue is that soccer ball. We're on the same team. We're just trying to score the goal. Uh, we're not opponents. And if we think of conflict like that, it helps with the cooperative spirit. I always think about that when we get into a, into a fight. What is the soccer ball? What's the issue? Because it's not her. It's something else, right? So a cooperative spirit and then ownership, owning your piece of the pie. I don't know who said it, but I love the saying, um, humble pie is a pastry that's never tasty, right? It takes some humility to own your piece of the pie and go, I don't, I'm not responsible for all this chaos in our relationship right now, but I knew I, I know I'm contributing to it. That little admission, that, that sense of humility goes a long way, right? So you, you get the idea. And then finally, empathy is, is such an important uh, piece of that as well. So fighting a good fight, it's essential. Conflict, it's the price we pay for deeper intimacy. So dedicate yourselves to learning how to fight a good fight. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Um, Les, we just have a few more minutes with you. Can you think about, I think there's a lot of, I have a daughter who's a newlywed, so I'm going to ask you some of these questions. Is they hit that, you know, they're in their first year of marriage, kind of some of the, the issues, you know, are there some poor habits that newlyweds get into and, and what do you suggest? How do you, how do they help manage some of those early on issues? Well, yeah, we, you know, sometimes in psychology, we call those scripts, right? That we have certain things that uh, we do because that's how it was done in my home or that's what my fantasy is of how things should be done or what have you. And, and, and they don't always line up, kind of comes full circle back to the expectations that we bring into the relationship. But Leslie and I refer to these as honeymoon habits. And the things that you do early on in your marriage, you have an opportunity early on in your marriage to do things that will serve you well down through the decades, right? We often tell newlyweds, choose your ruts carefully because you're going to be in them for a long time, right? And so, uh, in fact, choose grooves rather than ruts, right? Choose grooves. And even if you've been married for a long time, you can start a new groove um, uh, you know, I, I mentioned how important it is to have shared activity for a guy to open up. And by the way, once Leslie like <laughs> came across this research, she was like fully on board, right? Uh, lots of activity and stuff. She knows that. To, and so one of the things that we do every day, we take a walk. Um, and um, I, I, we've been doing this for a long time. If you looked at the pedometer on my my little iPhone, you'd go, that's that's kind of crazy. They're like obsessive compulsive about these walks. And, uh, but it's, it's our time to connect. And we did it since our, our kids were little, you know, and, uh, and, and taking them in the strollers, but we just find that we can, and that's a honeymoon habit. That's a groove that you can carve into your relationship. And so that's, that's what I would encourage is, is be conscious of that. So Les, as we kind of wrap things up, um, where can people go for more information about you and the, the great information that you offer? Well, I appreciate that. Um, our main website is lessandlesley.com, less, L-E-S, and then the word and, A-N-D, lesley.com. But let me highlight two things that I think that our listeners and our viewers might be interested in. One is a completely free resource that uh, you should take out your phone right now and go to Loveology dot org org this is a nonprofit completely for free it's like psychology but loveology l o v e 
Loveology, loveology.org. And here you're going to find a searchable database from the world's greatest experts on relationships where they can answer your specific questions, again, totally for free, uh, in three minutes, three or four minutes. And you might be standing, you might have your headphones in or your, your earbuds in and, and you're on the bus or you're in the grocery line or whatever. And you're thinking, I really need help in setting boundaries with my in-laws. They seem to be so antagonistic with how I'm parenting. And um, how do you set those boundaries? Well, Henry Cloud and John Townsend wrote a fantastic book called Boundaries. Who better to answer that question than them? So it's like that. So that's loveology.org. And then one other resource that I think our, our folks might be interested in, and that is an assessment tool that is called Better Love. You'll find it at betterlove.com, betterlove.com. And it's actually this assessment tool called Better Love featuring the five love languages. We don't have time to unpack this too much, but uh, it's a customized roadmap for lifelong love. In other words, by answering just a few questions, it takes you about 10 minutes, each of you do this separately, it generates this little roadmap. Um, I call it a report, you know, an assessment report, but what couple goes, ooh, I really want a report on my relationship, right? Nobody wants to, it's not that kind of report. You don't get graded, you can't pass fail. It's a customized roadmap to lifelong love. And it looks at your two personalities and the chemistry between them. No other assessment in the world does this, by the way. Uh, not just your individual hardwiring. Um, and why is that important? Because, well, there's never been a marriage like yours before. And there never will be again. You're as unique as a fingerprint. The chemistry between you has not existed before. And so we do that. And we have 40,000 variables because of the technology behind this. 40,000 variables that help you pinpoint the connections in your kind of the DNA of your relationship to leverage communication, conflict management, time, all the things that matter most to a healthy relationship. So loveology.org and betterlove.com. Wow. Amazing resources. And we're going to put those in our show notes for our listeners. They can go to our show notes and find those links as well. Um, Les has been amazing. Before we let you go, we have to ask the question we ask all of our, our guests. And that is, what is your, what is your takeaway of the day? What is a message that you hope our, our listeners will remember as they walk away from this? Well, that's easy. And um, that is summed up in a single word, empathy. If I could hand something through the airwaves to every person that's listening to us, it would be the capacity to see your spouse, as well as your kids, as well as your friends, as well as your coworkers, everybody else, to see through their eyes and to accurately see through eyes, to imagine, to put yourself in their shoes. It's the single most important relationship skill I think that we work on as human beings, uh, whether we're in a marriage or not, um, empathy. And most of us, the research shows, most of us think we do that far better than we actually do. Uh, Les and I wrote a book on it. It's called Trading Places, right? We both have PhDs. I, my doctoral dissertation involved empathy. And uh, you'd think I'd be pretty good at it by now. I struggle with it every day in my parenting, in my marriage, in my friendships. Empathy. It is a lifelong task. Uh, for all of us. So that's what I would leave our, our listeners with. Oh, that's great. Les, Liz, what about you? What's your takeaway today? 
Well, I love that conflict leads to closeness. You know, I've always felt that nothing is wasted. I think sometimes it's so easy for couples to get discouraged, like, oh my gosh, there must be something wrong with us, right? If we have this continual fight. But I love, of course, lessons, reminders of core that to be cooperative, to, um, to own the part that belongs to you, to respect and have empathy. So I love core. What about you? What's your takeaway, Dave? Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to jump on that bandwagon because compassion and empathy really I think are the foundation. So I'm glad that we all agree on that 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 is the that's a key to to connection. Yeah. Well, hey, thanks for joining us uh Dr. Parrott. We sure appreciate your time, the resources. It's been a great episode here, The Stronger Marriage Connection. We hope listeners will join us next time for an episode here and until then, keep doing those small and simple little things and have empathy and compassion. We'll see you. Goodbye. Thanks, Les. Bye. Everybody. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, do us a favor and take a few minutes to subscribe to our podcast and the Utah Marriage Commission YouTube channel, where you can watch this and every episode of the show. When you hit the like button and leave a comment, your feedback helps us improve the show. And don't forget to share this episode with a friend. You can also follow and connect with us on Instagram at Stronger Marriage Life and on Facebook at Stronger Marriage. Be sure to share with us what topics you want us to explore or what you loved about today's episode. If you want even more resources to improve your relationship connection, visit our website at strongermarriage.org, where you'll find free workshops, webinars, relationship surveys, and more. Each episode of Stronger Marriage Connection is hosted and sponsored by the Utah Marriage Commission at Utah State University. Finally, a big thanks to our producers, Rex Polanis, Kirsten Wilson, and the team at Utah State University, And you, our audience, you make this show possible. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.